Hello world, it's Siraj, and welcome to my podcast. My first guest is a friend and someone I deeply admire, Brian Johnson. He has a very humble beginning, born and raised in Utah, where his family struggled financially to make ends meet. Eventually, he paid his own way through college by starting several companies, and one of them, the legendary payments processor, Braintree, he sold to PayPal for $800 million. He then invested 100 million of his own funds into Kernel, a neuroscience startup he leads that's building advanced neural interfaces to treat disease and dysfunction, illuminate the mechanisms of intelligence, and extend our cognition. He also invested 100 million into OS Fund, a top performing venture fund that invests in scientists entrepreneurs building in biology, genetics, and chemistry. Brian has conquered debilitating depression, debt, and hopelessness. He's incredibly brave, smart, and resilient. But perhaps most importantly, he's a deeply compassionate human. So with that said, it's my honor to introduce the man who's been working tirelessly to help evolve human cognition, Brian Johnson. How are you today, Brian? <laughs> Thanks, Raj. Nice to see you. Yeah, great to see you. Great to see you. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but let's just start with what's most fascinating to me in the moment right now. I know that you're a voracious reader. You are always reading, and that has definitely deeply inspired me to start reading a lot more than I used to. I remember on Twitter, you released like nine books that you read over winter break, and that got me to, that's what, that was the catalyst for me. I wanted to go through those books and to hear a little bit more about those books. I've been curious ever since you made that tweet, like as to why you chose those books. I mean, I'm sure there's so many insights you got from those books, but perhaps let's start with like, maybe, um, I'm sure you had a broader um, intent in choosing those nine books in particular. What, what was that intent? The, the background for that was holidays are always a very challenging thing for me because I work pretty hard at the things I'm doing and spend a lot of time doing that, which means I don't have a whole lot of time to develop hobbies. So when I find myself with spare time, I oftentimes don't immediately know where to go with that. And so looking at a, a break that would have, I think we had uh, 10 to 14 days this year that where there was a break, I, I wondered how I could structure that time off so that it was rejuvenating and energizing and not something where I was constantly looking for busy trying to chase pleasure or happiness or something of the sort. And I decided that I would basically devote the entire time to reading. And I chose these books because I wanted to find things that would create new frame shifts on how to understand the world. And so the premise on this is that I, when I was 25 years old, I read a bunch of books about behavioral psychology and specifically about human biases and that we are not rational, logical creatures. We're actually a disaster in our cognition. And it shifted the way I understood my reality of myself and the world. And so over the break, I tried to, I wanted to read books that would basically create the same shift in my understanding of the world. And these, most of these books were geared towards math. And I wanted to understand the world through numbers and through math, and specifically how math has influenced the development of humanity. That's awesome. Because you're not like the traditional PhD, you know, always inside of math, but what you're doing is incredibly audacious and involves a lot of math, I'm sure. And so these books helped give you that insight in some way. So math makes sense as an intent. So then of those books, was there one that was just particularly profound and impactful or were they all just kind of the same in there? One in particular uh, about Zero, the biography of Zero, and this was a story I was unfamiliar with, but zero is actually, it's something we just assume is common knowledge. But zero was not discovered for until uh, a while ago. So we basically existed with just ones, twos, threes, fours, but zero represented this blind spot in history. And without zero, you can't do modern engineering, you can't, do, you can't build computers, you can't do anything we do really in the world today. And the discovery of zero was very, was very difficult because it clashed with religious... Uh, frameworks and with just the observation of why would zero even be useful. And so, for example, in the West, it clashed with, the, with Christianity because the void or nothingness was not something that philosophically, was, theologically was interesting. Uh, but in the East, they embraced this infinite and nothingness. 
And so to see the impact of once zero was discovered, it unleashed all this new capability within engineering and math and everything we have today in society. And so that framework invited me to contemplate where else do zeros exist? That it exists within our, in our society today, but if we could find it, it would open up these new frontiers of exploration for us. Absolutely. I had never thought about that, but I did know that zero is like a significant discovery. Is there like one, like one application of zero that you, that like you found to be particularly impactful? It's interesting. The book chronicles the various society, societal paths through numbers and, and keeping accounting and, and doing math. And so it looks at the Romans and the, and the uh, Persians, etc. And each society was stunted without zero. And so you basically could look at their progress and see that this one thing would turn the entire society around. And so oftentimes if we look at our society now, we have a bias which we exercise, which we assume by default we have all the tools we need to do things. It's just assembling them in the right order. It's harder to imagine that things may exist that we need to discover, which would then change everything because our brain is always wanting answers and resolution and everything. And so it's generally why I'm more interested in what I don't know than what I do know. That makes a lot of sense because I know you, but in general, people aren't like that. More people should be like that. They should want to, they, they should have this curious drive to figure out things that they don't know. One of the things that I really like about you is that you embrace the weird. That's like <laughs> totally one of my values as well. How would you describe weird? Weird is anything that invokes um, anxiety at first or, yeah, yeah anxiety. Yeah. 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 So I, I agree with you. I really like your statement. I would describe it as there are these boxes that we live within. Uh, for example, take social behavior, where we generally agree upon uh, socially acceptable behaviors and words and where we dress. And when someone violates that social norm, there's typically a penalty associated with it, either it's shame or outcasting, uh, you know, casting out that person from the group. And those boundaries are highly constraining. They're useful in that they help us scaffold as a society because we have these generally agreed upon principles, but then they also have this suffocating force. And so oftentimes when I arrive in any new area, any new scientific discipline, any new social circle, the immediate interest I have is trying to map out what is that box and why does it exist? Because it's artificially drawn. It's yeah. not the case that this is like a, a universal law. And so I agree with you. And so that's, I mean, it's mainly one of the reasons why I chose Los Angeles to build for Kernel is I evaluated the uh, four markets I could potentially build Kernel in Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And, I, and Los Angeles has, in my estimation, the most open space in its box out of any of these areas. And that would be conducive to building a company to say, we want to build technology that allows the human race to up-level itself, which is a subjective and weird concept. But I thought it was conducive here that there's more openness in that kind of uh, chosen path. There totally is. And I've learned that just from being here for six months. For people who don't know, like, and now a lot of people are going to move to Los Angeles. A lot of developers are going to move to Los Angeles, I'm sure. But um, Brian told me a couple years ago when I was living in Amsterdam when I came here, like, about how LA had that openness and vibe. And that definitely inspired me to move here. And I've definitely found that to be the case. I feel like this is like alternative technology capital. It's like the alternative technology capital. Teal is here. Watching the Valravi Comp move here soon. Um, so that's going to be super cool. Yeah, LA is super cool. So you've been reading a lot, um, and and when you read, are you, is it a Kindle? Is it are you listening? Are do you speed it up? Do you do any kind of like hack to like absorb that information faster, or you just like take your time and try to absorb every? How do you read? Yeah, I really enjoy paper books, and then I enjoy via audio. And so I do audio. I do speed it up. I find that I, I suppose it's maybe the content which determines that because there are certain rates of information intake that are appropriate for some content. Others, you want it to marinate and slowly digest. Yeah. And so I suppose it really depends on the book. Uh, the biography of Zero was, it was one I wanted to slowly digest because the concepts are very dense. And if I go too fast, I'm going to roll over a concept that could be the gem that shifts my thinking. And 
the search for, I guess, patterning, I guess, building on this conversation, there were boxes these civilizations had that prevented them from identifying zero. So if there was a religious ideology that had fear about zero, that's a box that prevents you from actively seeking out why would you want something like no one cares about zero fish they care about one fish two fish three fish and so in my consumption of information i try to carefully calibrate my intake so i never lose the opportunity to find reach beyond that boundary which exists in my own mind makes a lot of sense because you're always thinking about the mind and i feel like and to admit this, I've never admitted this before, I have been reading uh, over and over again a book I've never cared about or th- felt was relevant to Bhagavad Gita, hmm. just because the science of the self. Looking at it from a physics-based perspective, from a classical mechanics and quantum mechanics-based perspective, and trying to understand the disciplines that existed of the mind in these ancient people long ago, and different cultures have had it across the world. But the mind, I feel like science has neglected so much, the science of the hmm. self. Would you agree, or do you feel like, or like the science of the mind of the self? I guess on, on matters like this, I generally am not interested in my opinion in terms of like the concept is so big. I could certainly express an opinion. However, I don't think there's any value in it because I don't necessarily think I have any wisdom that would be equal to others who have thought more deeply about it. I, again, I'm more interested in trying to find within the question you posed to me where my immediate reactions go why my mind goes there, what cognitive tics I have in, in thinking about that, and then try to deconstruct my mental scaffolding to figure out where I may have these strong beliefs which limit my ability to expand as a person. That is really interesting, and I feel like that is one of the, your introspectiveness is just like, if, it, you know, if, if, if we were to have a metric, a single scalar value to represent introspectiveness in a person, yours would be like you know, 100 out of 100, 99 out of 100. Mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty much up there, but you're like a level above. Like just yesterday, I was supposed to be, you know, meeting people and stuff, but I just wanted to go back to my hotel room and just plan out my values and the disciplines I wanted to practice and prep, you know, plan out my ten-year plan. I, I, I more prefer introspectiveness to um, other things. That's really cool, and I think more people should be introspective in that way. So, so take note of that. But on that note, um, you're very, very introspective. You, you wrote this blog post that I read several times called A Plan for Humanity. Definitely check it out if you haven't read it. Also follow Brian on, on Twitter um, to, and his newsletter. He's got a great newsletter. But uh, so future literacy is super important to you. And I, I feel like I'm, I've grasped what it is, but could you explain it in your own words in like a you know, brief yeah. summary of future yeah. literacy? I wanted, the reason why future literacy became a necessity as a concept to figure out was that I care deeply about the human race thriving into the future. I care specifically about being able to live in a future that is even better than we can imagine. So it actually exceeds our even uh, wildest anticipations. And I don't think that is unrealistic or naive or unachievable. And in trying to achieve that objective, I wondered what could I do personally, that would maximally contribute to that objective. And in thinking through that, I noticed in my own thought processes that my brain is configured in a way by default that is counter to that kind of thinking. My brain wants immediate and now. It doesn't want long-term things. It doesn't even care about things that I may not personally experience. So whatever a human may experience in the year 2150, I'm biologically designed to not care about that. I just care about my own. And I wanted to figure out a framework in which I could play with in my own mind of how I can start making these adjustments to changing. And future literacy is idea that that resonated with me. And so that the concept can be captured in the moment where I I realized it was I was in the Saudi Arabian desert with uh, this gentleman. And we were playing this game and... Uh, he said, well, we were talking, and he said, we just finished our 2030 plan for our country. And I said, "That, how do you plan for 2030 in the year 2017? Because by the time we get to 2030, the world will have changed in such dramatic ways, a 2017 plan is not going to withstand a 2030 reality. 
And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, let's play this game. Let's imagine you and I build a robot and we want to get this robot to the, the sand hill right there on the horizon. How would we do it? We could do two ways. We could, one is we could build the robot, topographically map the sand dunes, and then say, go robot to that endpoint with the GPS coordinates. And that robot could commence its, its trek and then it would get stuck in the sand in a few minutes because the winds would shift and the terrain would change. The other way to do it would be to build a robot that has all the, the abilities to respond in real time to changing circumstances. And so it, didn't, it wouldn't matter how the sands shift or whether there were storms, the robot could navigate its way through the sand to get to the endpoint by itself. So really, it's a system design expecting that you don't know what your, what your, uh, what your endpoint is necessary. You're just in an approximate direction. It also anticipates change as the only constant. And those things are largely counter to how we live life, where we want to fix things in systems. We want to keep that status quo uh, present. And future literacy attempts to basically say, as a society, we achieved basic literacy, reading and writing, which has really helped for all of us to cooperate. We need another type of literacy, future literacy, in order for all of us to thrive. And so I think future literacy could be taught in schools. I think it could be something we actively work on with our brains. But to me, it is an essential educational component of us uh, thriving in the future. Absolutely. Like we learn about history. We don't learn about the future. Like there's a history class that makes total sense. Um, yeah. So speaking about education and what we should be learning as a society, as a country, as just a species in general, I spend a lot of time thinking about what the future of education looks like and just trying a bunch of crazy things to figure out what would, what, what could work for this new generation. What, what does the future of education look like to you, like looking 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead? It's super unpredictable, but... Um, yeah. yeah. The most interesting part of that question to me is the primary assumption that most of us have in that equation. We assume that if a child commences school in kindergarten today, that when they're finished with their education, whether it be high school or PhD, we largely assume that their form of cognition will be the same as it is today. Because we think we are currently this, uh, we're logical, rational, knowledge acquiring tool makers. That's how we are. And we assume that is fixed, that we will always be like that in the future. We think everything around us is going to change, but we assume that we will be identical in the future as we are today. What we do not assume is that the Siraj in 20 years from now would basically be unidentifiable from the Siraj today. And the question I wonder about is, as we build up greater infrastructure in our computing, AI, and we more closely evolve with that technology if our brains will also evolve at a rate that is substantially faster than we have with the past 10,000 years. And so could it be, I wonder, a situation where Homo erectus lived 2 million years ago. Homo erectus did not have language like we have today. It did not have abstract concepts like math, the modern stock market. It would have been impossible to explain the stock market to Homo erectus because yeah. you'd have to explain math and economics and rule of law and all these abstract concepts we take for granted. And the most interesting question for me on education is how could we prepare with a future literate mindset knowing that things are going to shift rapidly? We're not quite sure what those endpoints are, but how do we get ourselves in a situation where we can be hyper-responsive to our environment with our cognition and also understand these forces coming at play of how technology is going to change our minds. I, mean, I guess like one other point for you on this is we, right now, we are the most, I'd say, formidable form of intelligence in the known universe. We're building up machine intelligence, which is becoming really capable in many, many, many ways. We can map it out and it's going to improve. We build this form of intelligence to conform to our reality. It's not that AI was, came out of the womb yeah. and was naturally like humans. We have programmed it to be, to be like humans, to interface with our reality. But our reality is not the only reality that exists. The reality that an octopus experiences yeah. is very different from our reality, but we have a hard time imagining there's other realities besides our own. If we have the chance to engage more directly with artificial intelligence in a co-evolutionary way and we loosen 
the bounds so we can start co-evolving and expanding our realities and going into different directions, we, in many ways, loosen the constraint that is the most, uh, that, it, that it has the severest constraint on our ability to evolve and, and learn as people. And I think that's where it gets really interesting to imagine the future. And so, in short, <laughs> thinking about education is, is a hard problem. You can, you can be practically oriented and say, it makes sense to do the following uh, topics and the following steps of progression for a student today while also pointing to the thing. However, I think it's interesting to in incorporate these other possibilities of how we might expand into something entirely foreign to us. That makes total sense. Having adaptability to change, being an important skill for people to have, is a part of the future of education, in your opinion. That yes, makes and to be open to this idea that we, the future of you, may be unrecognizable from you today. And that's what I tell my, my kids this. I've, yeah. I, and you know, my oldest is 15. This is a concept that, that is intuitively resonant for him, that whatever his life plans are now may be totally wrong when he arrives at that point, which he imagines. Yeah, it's hard for people to grasp the unknown unknowns and to accept the unknown unknowns because it causes anxiety. And it, yeah. yeah, right? Yeah, more people need to be thinking in that way. And then I really love this idea of co-evolutionary, co-evolution with AI and then using neural technology to help us get there and just accepting that we're going to be something different in the future than what we are now because AI is accelerating. The, you know, development of AI is accelerating as we speak. So on that note, um, what you're doing at Kernel is helping us get there in some way or form. So what I've, and I've met a lot of people at Kernel and they're all awesome, like, Super cool culture, super cool um, company. Um, but I, I've always been curious, like, what is the work culture like at Kernel? Because you're the one kind of driving it and setting the standards. Yeah. Maybe as some context on how I think about this question. At Braintree, we, our primary function was doing payments. And it's difficult to get people fired up about payments. Yeah. It's, a, it's a functional element we all deal with in life. And so the game that we played there was how do we become, I guess I, I created three goals. One is how do we become the best in the industry, what we did. So uh, excellence in our technological build and process. <clears throat> Two, uh, how do we get customers to write us love letters on a regular basis? And three, how can people who work at Braintree say it's the best job they've ever had in their entire life? I didn't set any goals for revenue or for user metrics. It was just simply those three criteria. And my thought was, if we optimize for those three things, everything else will take care of itself. And it was true. I, th I think we did really well on those metrics. Of... And so in building kernel, it is a, it's a different starting point. And my objective with kernel is to build technology that allows the human race again to up-level itself. And I say up-level because it, it's a little bit subjective because everyone has a different understanding of what that means. Right. But the basic drive is we can become better in ways we can imagine and even in ways we can imagine. We can go beyond what we can even contemplate. And so one is I think that the people who work here are philosophically drawn to that kind of objective. Uh, so Kernel is not a job, it is a mission. And then number two, practically in the company, I've, I worked very hard to tune the harmonics in the company. And so I want people to have total mental and emotional clarity when they work on a daily basis. If their chair is uncomfortable or if there's an annoying sound or if, if the food is not uh, helping them optimize themselves, I don't care. Whatever it is that distracts their, or if they have a hard time buying something, our processes don't work, I want to know every single thought process that limits that a person's ability to apply their brains. We have 50 people, including almost uh, 30, yeah, 31 PhDs. These people have worked incredibly hard to acquire the knowledge and skills they have in life. And I view it as a harmonics game of everyone being their best self. And that creates a, a closed-loop system of getting people accustomed to raising their hand and saying, hey, I have this problem that's distracted from, that is not allowing me to be my best self. And let's fix this. And then having the systems inside a kernel that are responsive to that and say, let's address it. And it's, it's working. Like we have a magical culture of people are kind. Uh, they're extraordinarily talented. We're working on some of the hardest 
engineering and scientific problems you can find. And we're also trying to do something next to impossible. And so it creates a rich environment of intellectual vigor, uh, rigor and also just a, a emotionally, intellectually satisfying place that you're not hit with drama on politics and emotional disturbances and the things we all think are unpleasant. That's really interesting. The kindness part is really interesting. I feel like that gets missed a lot as, as a part of like a corporate or a company culture in general. Um, wow, okay. So yeah, uh, it definitely, it, it must be super hard. All the engineering problems must be hard. You're spanning so many scientific disciplines from photonics to quantum mechanics even to artificial intelligence, uh, of course. All of it. Yeah, which is insane. I can't. I can only imagine all that neural data and all the the joy that comes from trying to decipher it and find the representations using AI and all sorts of pattern recognition systems. That's super cool. Uh, so, I mean, there, there must be so many scientific problems there and you have a wide variety of interests in, in scientific disciplines. Um, what are some scientific problems that are particularly interesting to you? It could be in any field. It could be the brain, neuroscience, or um, there's a lot, but... Uh, What's, what's, what's one, for example? Yeah. There's actually a few I care about that I, I view as equivalent to zero, the discovery of zero. And if, you can, if we can discover zero in these areas, it opens up a whole new frontier of possibility. So one, the brain with kernel. If we, for example, the other day, uh, I've been hiking a lot here in L.A. Nice. And my Where? I, I never hike. I didn't know there was a good hiking spot. Yeah, there's some amazing ones. We'll, we'll go, we'll go okay. hiking together. All right, perfect. And my hip started hurting from all the hiking I was doing. And so I wanted to get a new pair of shoes. I walked into uh, a shoe place here in Santa Monica. And when I walked in, I expected to look at the rack and choose a shoe on the wall and say, that blue one, let's do that one. But instead, they put me on a machine. They measured my length, my width, my arch structure, and then they walked me over to the treadmill and I ran and then it measured the impact of how my ankles landed when I, when I ran, the structure of my foot, the pressure on my arch. And they said, based upon this, we're going to give you a custom designed insole. We're gonna do it right now, uh, based upon uh, your, this fitting system. And we're going to recommend a shoe that accommodates the width and the, all your characteristics. And I did it and it's the most comfortable pair of shoes I've ever had in my entire life. I need these shoes. And I, I wondered how in the world I ever bought shoes before in that crude fashion of walking in and just randomly selecting this thing but having no idea the impact it was having on my entire body. The effects were invisible for me. But now I have greater balance within my body because I have this insole and the shoe that's better structured for my specific needs. And so I can imagine a situation with Kernel where you have a brain interface and you now do the same process. The interface is on your head and you give it some data to calibrate. You, for example, you do your daily routines, like you experience social media, you consume news, information, uh, news sources, you interact with friends, you read a book, you do your meditation practice, like whatever your thing is, and then the interface allows you to quantify those activities and give you a personalized recommendation on every front. It should say, Siraj, when you go to this news website, your fear, spikes, your anxiety spikes, you have feelings. I'm just making this up, right? Yeah, but basically this, yeah. this map of all your experience. And then in that moment, you would look back at your immediate self five minutes ago and say, how did I ever experience the world in this non-personalized way, not knowing what effects the world is having on me? And you would retune your entire life yeah. uh, through this data. And so that, that's one is if we did that, we, if we could actually bring a brain interface that acquires high quality neural data, it would re-architect all of society because we now have this data source. Yeah. That's number one. Number two is there are these fundamental building blocks of us and our world that are really important. So atoms and molecules and organisms and complex systems. And they're this almost magical system that just works. Our world just exists and, and, uh, Plants grow and they do photosynthesis. It's this amazing thing. We are starting to make progress in understanding that and, and actively engineer those things. But what I really care about is how do we become system administrators of these tiny elements? So how do you actually gain engineering capacity to design atomic structures 
atom by atom to do specific things. And how do you uh, uh, precisely do organisms? And so we won't get into the examples now, but the companies I've invested in are doing practical things now with these platforms. And if we achieve programmability of these basic structures, then now it becomes a different problem. So for example, you say, hey, we're losing coral in the oceans because of the acidification. And so the question is, what tools do we have at our exposure to rebuild a coral reef, which is really important for the health of this ecosystem? So if you can, if you can build things atom by atom, if you can build organisms, you can build all these things, then we now have a new toolkit to approach all these different problems. I take any problem in the world. And so that's really my biggest, what I care about the most is I think that each one of these things could be equal to a zero and yeah. introduce a new era of capabilities for all of us. I love that physics-based approach of looking at the very fundamental building blocks of reality and realizing that we can engineer them. And you're, not, and you're putting your money where your mouth is because OS, that's like the, 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 what OS Fund is investing in, like scientists, entrepreneurs who, are, who have that vision, who, who understand that atoms and molecules can be programmable and that we are in an era right now where biology and computer science are becoming the same thing, the gene and the bite, as Siddharth Mukherjee said in his book, The Gene, which I read recently. I don't know if you ever... I have, yeah. You, you've read that yeah, book? Yeah, uh, Isn't that a great book? It's a great book. Yeah. Um, that's super cool, yeah. And like people don't, they don't appreciate biotech as much because the profit isn't as apparent there as, you know, you, you have to have an understanding of a sign. It's not like finance or, you know, yeah. anything finance related. Well, so, here's like uh, one example to make it tangible because yeah. that's a really abstract concept. So right now in a Chanel number no. five bottle of perfume, there's a input of 1,000 rose petals. So in order to get that, that input, you need to grow the rose petal and you need to plant it, grow it, water it, fertilize it, harvest it, and then get the rose petals in the Chanel number no. five bottle of perfume. Instead of doing that, we invested in a company called Ginkgo Bioworks in Boston, where they can take a microorganism, in this case, yeast, which is used to make beer, they can program the yeast to make rose oil. So that becomes your manufacturing plant. And in doing that, you eliminate having to grow the plant in the field, consume that real estate, do the fertilizer, all the harvesting, all the environmental problems of doing that. Being able to program biology to do things like that uh, changes how everything we do in society exists. So now you take any problem we have and you say, well, could you, t could you actually program biology to do that same thing in a lower cost, uh, more predictable, and a more environmentally friendly way? Uh, or, uh, for example, this company in Chicago, Numat, they build these molecular structures atom by atom. And uh, they're in a field of metal organic frameworks, the most cited field in chemistry over the past couple of decades. They can build a molecular structure that stores gas at 80 times the density with no change of form factor. And so these are the kinds of things that unleashes. Uh, so it's not abstract. I mean, there are specific examples that apply to every aspect of our society that are, that are applicable now, not 10 years from now, not after a billion dollars, but right now. Right now, you heard that, guys? Right now, so get on it. We're gonna start talking about that more as well. So that's super cool. And there are actual companies that, that Brian's invested in that are actually doing this and they're profitable and they're making money. These are sustainable businesses that are um, using scientific, they're making scientific discoveries and then immediately applying them. So if you had Edison and Tesla put them together, that's the type of entrepreneur that, that Brian has been investing in so far. Um, so yeah, so you're really thinking about biology and you're thinking about um, consciousness, you're thinking about these profound concepts all day that most people don't. They just go through life and they don't think about them. So I think one thing that manifests from that for you is you, you take these profound thoughts that you've had and you apply them to help upgrade yourself. I know that you do like something about blood testing or blood mm. work. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm, I'm curious like all the different ways that you upgrade yourself um, biologically. Um, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. One comment on your previous statement, I do spend a lot of time thinking about these concepts and in doing so, I consider myself very fortunate. A lot of people are not in a position in life where they have the same opportunity because they work sometimes one, two, three jobs trying to make ends meet and in doing that, they're so busy and stressed out from those demands, there's no space in the brain 
to think about any of this. And so I, I appreciate the opportunity I have to do that. And I hope that I can use the, this opportunity to create, you know, to better, to, to do better things in the world. But um, I guess that, that's, I just mentioned that because that is a challenge we have as a society is if we were able to, it, it's really hard to be human. Yeah. <laughs> like really hard to be human on a daily basis. It's within our own minds. Uh, like our minds are terrible to us. Wait, uh, logistically, it's very hard to exist in the world. And Monkey so, mind. Yeah. 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 It, but if we, could, if we could scaffold up better societal structures so it was less stressful and it was just less challenging, then we might be able to open ourselves up. And if, of course, the other problem we have is that we're getting fed all this digital content that the moment we have one free second to think, we turn to something else to tell us what to think. And so it's, the, and it's easy and it feels good and it's convenient and it, and, it, and it caters to our inherent desire to do the thing that requires the least amount of energy. But yeah. that said, yeah, so I, I do extensive things for my health and it happened because when I was 21, I got diagnosed with hypothyroidism. My thyroid was not producing enough hormone. I had a blood test and it came back. The doctor gave it to me and I was floored that I could acquire data from my blood. I got this three pages and I just fell in love data. And I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And so I just started doing blood draws on a regular basis to see where I was at. And then when I came down chronic depression, I became chronically depressed when I was 24. It became my sole mission in life to relieve myself from that state of hopelessness. And I tried everything known to man to relieve myself from depression. And so through that process, I became familiar with all kinds of tests and procedures and therapeutic approaches to try to do it. And once I did overcome my depression, it had become habitual. And then I, at the age of 34, I started feeling really well again. And so at that point, it was just habitual and I continued along this path. And so, yeah, it is uh, taking care of myself is, is my second job. Wow. Your second, and your first being Colonel. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It makes sense because if you take care of yourself, Colonel will, it, it affects Colonel. That's right. That makes sense. Yeah. Wellness. Yeah. You have, you have a, you have a deep focus on wellness, personal health and wellness and well being. And, uh, yeah. And so one of those things you do is like sleep really well, which yeah. has definitely influenced me and to try to sleep better. Do you feel these days like you're healthy, you know, like how do you feel about your health these days in general? How are you? How are you? Yeah, thanks, Josh, for asking. (laughs) Never, ever been better in my entire life. And not only based upon how I feel subjectively, but by all my biomarkers. I've been recording my data now for 20 years. I have 20 years of data that I've accumulated about myself, from blood draws, from my microbiome, from my genome, to Uh hormones or food activity. I mean, it is a... I have an enormous amount of data. And so, like, for example... Right now, to determine my diet every 90 days, I do a, a food reactivity test to find out which foods are causing inflammation in my body and then which foods are the lowest reactive with my body. And I isolate those foods and I only eat those foods for 90 days to optimize for trying to get to zero inflammation in my body. And I do things like that to try to fine tune my body. Then I do things like I, I measure my telomeres, which are the end caps on your chromosomes, the science is still emergent in that. Uh, if there are any marker of success, then I've been able to reverse those within, uh, so reverse my age within telomere markers over the, over the past couple of years. Yeah. So I don't know yet if it's conclusive, but by every data point I can acquire, my health has never been better. And so I, I, I still think we know very little about biology in our bodies, but if the data points I'm measuring are accurate, then what I have been doing has been working really well. Wow, that, that's really eye-opening that you have a data-driven approach to eating food. I try to do that with calorie counting and like just picking certain classes of foods, but you take it to that next level. Is there like one food that has passed your, your test, like maybe like asparagus or something? I'm just curious. Uh, so actually, I, on this latest food test I took, I had a slight reactivity to asparagus and cauliflower. And so I've avoided those two foods for the past 60 days and hoping, and it changes every time. Yeah, you're not but, missing out on much. <laughs> the I guess so. I guess the other data points is I do this food reactivity test. Test. I also 
of course, did the genomic markers to see what kind of foods my body is naturally responsive to and not responsive to. And so there's multiple inputs in terms of what I consume and why. And I've been able to back into that. And as I've done it, I have felt my body feel much more clean in what I'm consuming. And so now it's not a random approach and it's not a non-personalized diet. So this goes again back to the brain. Yeah. The next thing I want is I want to hyper-personalize my brain for well-being. And I can't do that now. I don't have the tools to do it. And it's the, it feels like one of the remaining items to do in society because we, we're getting pretty good tools in our body. Yeah. We have nothing for the brain. And if we could do that, uh, we start fine-tuning. I wonder where could I go with my own cognition and how could I, where could I go with others? Like how, how would our relationship evolve if we had better ways to connect and understand each other and explore right, the, the dimensional space of what, yeah. it, what it means to be friends. I love that terminology, dimensional space, exactly. More people need to be thinking of them in this like mathematical, physics-based way because it, this, it just, it, it helps. It's a great framework for reasoning and, and building up to the concepts that you, you hold so dear today. Like you have to start at that approach. Um, I'm also curious like uh, if there are any like data-driven health apps out there, like pull that shit up. Like if there's like, if there might be like, just so like people can, you know, see if there's uh, something like that, like relevant like that. I'm sure, but you don't use an app. You just kind of like do it yourself and report it. I do, yeah. I maintain my own database. Yeah. And I, I guess I created that structure because nothing existed before. I, there are companies that are doing this now. I'm not familiar with them, nor have I invested the time to transition my data from that. Yeah. The system's working and... It works well enough so yeah, far. Yeah, well enough, yeah. Nice. Awesome. Um, yeah, I saw one small business that Oh, what's it called? Migrant Buddy. There's something applicable for you guys. Super cool. So, um, talking about like health and genetics. So, genetics is one of the coming. Have you? Did you read Hacking Darwin, by the way, by Jamie, Jamie Metzl? It just came out. I haven't yet. Yeah, you know about it. Though. I, yeah, and Jamie's a friend. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've been excited to read it. Yes, awesome. Uh, yeah, it was super cool. Um, but he got me thinking about the role of genetics even more, and then China in particular mm -hmm. as a country, as a nation state. And, and as you know, they've been making a lot of, I don't know if you know, but like, actually your brother went to China recently, right? Mm -hmm. or something like that. So what, what, how, what's your feeling on China's role in the future of technology in general? Like, what are your thoughts on China? Mm -hmm. Are you like afraid of China? Are you accepting? Are you, are you just apathetic to it? Does it ever enter your day-to-day -day mind space? On a question like that, the most interesting thing to me is the predictability of the system that, is, that represents that question. So for example, if we define the characteristics of that question, we have two nation states that have different moral and ethical values. And those moral and ethical systems are clashing to some extent, where China does something that violates the standard, the, not only the, like the, the layperson standards of morals and ethics in the U.S., but also the scientific community. So one is you've got two systems that are clashing. Number two is you have a set of moral and ethical structures that people naturally assume are basically going to exist in perpetuity. Yeah. But they're not. They're momentary structures. Uh, our... our Morals and ethics are going to evolve tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and then in 10 years or 20 years, they're going to be entirely different. And so for me, the, that question sits within the context of the clash that exists today and then where we might go in 10 to 20 years to not foreclose that, that we may have different possibilities. But generally speaking, when technologies are emergent, this question, this conflict always comes up where... There's early uses that scare everybody, uh, violate social norms and ethics. Everyone gets upset, then they evolve, and then once they, be, once they are shown to work and they're low cost, everybody adopts it. Yeah. It's just like the predictable thing humans do. Yeah. And so instead of trying to insert myself in this conversation and, uh, and situation and, and express an opinion on right, wrong, or, or uh, I'd rather look at it from how humans have behaved for thousands of years on things like this, how we're likely to behave now, and then as we take steps evolving that, that to me is a much more interesting framework to then extract insights. Otherwise, I'm going to express an opinion and bury myself in this conversation by taking a stand. If I say it's wrong and the, it's wrong for the following reasons, 
in my mind, I've now convinced my, I've now put a stake in the ground of what my position is, and I'm going to find data to entrench myself even further and be less open-minded to other alternatives. So trying to maintain a distance from that, to try to try to maintain mental clarity. That's a really interesting, and it seems like it's a useful perspective because you don't want to get too attached to any identity because then you're bound by that, mm -hmm. the parameters of that identity. That makes total sense. And, and you don't realize what's going on behind the scenes in your brain. You, you can't in real time track all the things that are going on that are impinging upon your ability to try to see more clearly than you can or try to maintain an open mind. We're all subject to this irrationality and these biases, which we don't control, nor can we see. And, and the trick of our brain, the brain tricks us into thinking we don't have them. Our brain suggests to us that we see things rationally and logically and clearly. We're not hypocritical. All those things are not true. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Have you been to China? I have. You have, nice. What'd you think? Or where'd you go? Uh, Shanghai and um, Shenzhen. A few, a few places. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, so you've been to, nice. I've been to a, yeah, did a multi-city tour. What'd you think? I haven't been yet. I need to go. I'm going next month. Definitely a data point that's useful for you in life. Understanding an emergent society and the rules in which they've adopted to play the game. I like that. Data-driven approach. It's a data point, guys. That's exactly the way I think internally as well. Everything's a data point. It makes sense. Like, even if I'm like, being intimate with someone, even that's a data point for like health reasons. Like, I don't know if you take it to that level. Like, it, I do. I certainly do. You do? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Dude, that's awesome. Okay, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Like, this is good for my health because of sensual touch and then like, you know, you know, saliva and things like that. Like, really, <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, but to to move on from from there. Um, so uh, speaking about data and data points. Uh, apparently, there's this company, I think it's called Facebook, that holds all the data or a lot of the data in the world. And there are other social media platforms that we all use that collect this data. And I know that you've been outspoken about the need to own your data. You had that campaign a while ago that I participated in to some extent. Um, what are your thoughts these days? Like this stuff is evolving as we speak. Um, what are your thoughts on how we can prevent social media from exploiting human minds? Mm -hmm. It's highly likely that in, in the near future, I don't know when, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that at that time, that generation of people will look back at us and be shocked that we created these incredibly powerful tools of technology and we used them unabashedly to make people worse versions of themselves. They do not care if my 15-year-old goes to bed on time or completes his homework or is emotionally stable. It's not their job to do that, but it's also irresponsible to forcefully feed an addiction system that makes people worse. And it is the most damning thing in our society today. I agree. This, this, if we could choose one, a singular focus for the entire human race, my vote would go towards radically improving ourselves. And that does not mean higher IQ. It means opening our minds to improving the ways in which we know about, becoming kinder and more compassionate, but also ways we can't even imagine. And instead, we use our technological powers to do the exact opposite. And it's befuddling to me that we do that. And privacy is a component of that. I, I hope that we come to this realization soon, that it really is in all of our best interests that we all become better. And if our economic systems can be reconfigured for that, it may have the second and third order, order consequences that may solve or partially solve all of the problems we have. But to layer on top of the difficulty of being human as it is, is very hard, again, to be human, and to layer that on top, where now you have active forces in your life pushing you to do things that are not in your best interest, yeah. nudging you towards the wrong habits. Like, that's the last thing I need is someone else 
to be making me worse, right? I mean, I want to surround myself with force influences that make me better. Yes. And so I, I hope that the culture of technology will shift and that, yeah, enough said. Absolutely. Have you read any of Jerome Lanier's works? I have not. Do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. He's head of Microsoft VR. He has a huge, he's, he's huge dreads, but he's written, written several books on this. And the idea, the reason I mentioned that is because when you said nudge, that reminded me of like what he's talking about. They are psychological algorithmic nudges, mm -hmm. in, as you know, in different directions for, for, for objectives that we don't even know. What, yeah. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. And uh, right, the debate on privacy is really interesting. I remember in the Tom Bilio interview, you were talking about how I love how outspoken you are on Facebook because there are so many people I know who are prominent in the AI community who, you know, I talk to and stuff. They don't want to talk about Facebook because either they have some business, PyTorch is a popular library that Facebook promotes. You don't care because you're kind of free of that, which is awesome as a free agent. So it's really cool you're talking about that. It's super important. So, right, the privacy debate is really interesting. Um, they're trying to accrue all of that value from your cognition step by step until they can take all of that value from you to, reiter to reiterate what his point was on privacy, privacy that I know about. And then eventually they want to try to take all of that value from you. That's kind of the underlying objective. It makes sense in a profit-based motive. So then the incentives are there to exploit people based on attention. Um, is there any like, what, what do you think, how do you think it's going to play out if you were to make a bet if you want to? Mm -hmm. If we, if we try to pull ourselves out of the weeds of this conversation, to me, what it looks like is we have architected the perfect economic system to put humans out of business as fast as humanly possible. And what I mean by that is we build technology. We largely use that technology to make ourselves worse. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. Sometimes companies are involved, like it, that thing Profits are made, better technology is made that then is better at making us worse versions of ourselves. Profits are made, and that cycle continues. The only time we try to become better, better is in our formal education systems and then in our personal efforts to, you know, whatever the person's practices are, whether it be religious or meditative or taking care of oneself, but improving the ourselves and all of society is not a priority that we have. And the fact that we are missing that and that we're so obsessed and blinded by our, by our focus on technology, we've lost sight of ourselves. So now we're walking into this future where we're building technology and the highest profits are to displace people. That's where you make the most amount of money in building technology or to consume their attention at, at that person's expense. So we need to build a new economic system, again, that focuses on, on human improvement above all, uh, for yes. all of us. Absolutely. And I felt like Bitcoin could have been that or blockchain. It's apparently it's rallying right now. So like now the, the interest is coming back. So hopefully that becomes a solution again to help us with this. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So incentives and like making sure that it's not exploiting us via creating new economic systems that are optimizing for human well-being instead of attention, which is causing anxiety and depression. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. And being able to think in this way, in the, in the way that, like, like I was on the plane this morning and I was looking around and, every, and like people were just scrolling on Instagram and I was like, how do, you, how do you do that? Like when I go to Instagram, I don't scroll. When I go to anything, I just block all the feeds and I just go directly to either messages or I post some content that I find to be useful for other people. Most content is not, but everybody is so addicted to these platforms that one of the ways you've been able to realize and become aware and conscious that these are actually negatively influencing people you know, people's opinions in different ways and psyches is because you're able to think differently. And they're, one of the ways you've been able to think differently is by approaching things from a physics-based, reason-based, science-based approach. But I also noticed that you have this tattoo mm. on your wrist that is a pretty interesting. Um, what is that tattoo, if, uh, if I can ask? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a molecule. It's a molecule. Okay. It's a molecule. And... Uh, you were talking to me a little bit about psychedelics at one point to help, you know, think in a different way, which I have done as well, mushrooms, and, you know, I've talked about that before. Um, what has been your experience with psychedelics? 
if 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 uh, if yeah. any, yeah. The the most influential experiences of my life have come from the discovery of new realities that exist outside of the current reality I occupy. And it's happened several times in a big way. For example, I grew up in a deeply religious community for the first 20 years of my life. It was literally the only reality I knew. Yeah. And so the outside world was painted as threatening and not getting it. And they were basically what you don't want to be. And your objective was to persuade them that your reality was the only reality and their reality was wrong. Yeah. And when I discovered that that was the case and I emerged from that religious reality into something else and I could see them side by side, it was the most shocking experience of my life because literally I was trapped in the singular reality. And when that opened up, I was like, wait a second, like, this is amazing. There's this whole other reality that exists outside this. The second time it happened was when I was 25 and I read all these books on behavioral economics and I had a mirror given to me and it showed me what a disaster my brain was by default. That I had, I did have 188 chronicled human biases. I was basically powerless against these things. I was illogical. I was irrational. I was hypocritical. That was a shock because I thought I was everything. I was not that. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I'd say the next uh, another one has been psychedelic uh, entheogens. entheogens, and they open the door to other possibilities of what reality could be. Yeah. And every time these experiences happen, it invites me to be to try to be less judgmental, to have less firm opinions, to be more open-minded. I don't think the reality I occupy now is the ultimate reality. I'm just in this, this stage of the reality and I'm going to go to something else. And the liberation that has accompanied that, those experiences makes trying to find new realities the most exciting thing in existence to me. And again, it's why brain interfaces because if we look at the powers that constrain us from being boxed into our little world and expand them out, it's really hard to find your way out. Entheogens are a way that is entirely unexpected, entirely unpredictable. It's just whack yeah. <laughs> on every level. Yeah. Now, that's hard to have with a different person. Like if you and, you and I are both humans, we both live in Los Angeles, we have many things in common, it's very hard for you and I to surprise ourselves, each right. other, in conversation. But when you pair the mind with artificial intelligence and now you give that some degrees of freedom to take you out, you can start incorporating these influences that take you in a more broader perspective of reality construction. And to me, yeah, that's why Kernel is the most exciting endeavor I could ever imagine myself being involved in because you, this is literally the most um, exciting journey we could ever take. So past people have, uh, you know, Columbus was trying to find the new world and uh, we went out in space. So even we could see it, we were actually going out to be there, but yeah. this journey outside of our minds and so, yeah, I, I personally have had a, a wonderful experience in expanding, trying to expand myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. So is DMT considered an entheogen? I'm not sh totally sure because I've done DMT twice. <laughs> I didn't break through, unfortunately. Um, actually, when I made, um, I made like a video about Colonel a while ago, I, I think I showed you. Um, the top comment was like, I think Siraj took a little bit more than a microdose, <laughs> which is uh, interesting to think about. So it just goes to show that people understand that to get to this um, way of thinking, you have to ex have different experiences that are radically different. Yeah. And um, as you said, you know, this is one way to do that, these entheogens and these yeah. psychedelic gateways to perception. But there are other ways, you know, strict ascetic, medita ascetic meditation and I'm sure, but this is just like a way to just jump in. That's right. And a, a good book to read on this is Flatland. Have you read that? I haven't. Okay, so it's a, this, the plot is that this two-dimensional creature exists in this two-dimensional world. And a three-dimensional creature shows up. And it's like, hey, two-dimensional creature, there's another dimension of existence. And yeah. the two-dimensional creature is like, wait, no, like, impossible, no way. This is my reality. And so it's this whole dialogue between the two and three dimension reality. And finally, two the two dimensional structure can see the third dimension 
of reality, structures and three dimensions, like blows his mind. Yeah. And he's so excited. He's like, wait, where's the fourth? And then in a plot twist, the third, the three dimensional structure is like, no, 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 no. Like no way can a fourth dimensional structure exist. So it's so funny because the three dimensional structure was the one telling the other that they were so, the two dimensional structure, it was so close minded, but yeah. then failed to even contemplate there could be another dimension to bond, a bond beyond its own. Yeah. And so it really creates a tangible dialogue of the friction we feel on our brains of others suggesting to us that something may exist that is not in our current reality. All of our alarms go off and we're like, no way. Oh. That's nuts. That's crazy. That's crazy. silly. You know, whatever. Yeah. Ban it or whatever. Ban it. Exactly. Ban it, yeah. 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 Pass a law against it. That makes total sense. And like the color, like a color like red that we don't know about or a concept like music that, you know, we don't know about something like that. Totally. It makes, it makes total sense. All right. We'll have to end it there. Wizards, remember to follow Brian on Twitter. Apply to Colonel if you think you can help him on his extraordinarily audacious mission. And apply to OS Fund if you're an entrepreneur determined to help rewrite the operating system of life. Links to everything will be in the video description. Thank you so much for being here, Brian. Thanks, Raj.